0: Package being delivered. You know, if you haven't heard, in the last few years there's been a lot of discussion around America's problems with systemic white supremacism and, well, white nationalists. We predicted that Charlottesville would be the largest gathering of white supremacists in over a decade, um, and unfortunately we were right. Choose will not replace us! Not. Everybody remembers that day in Charlottesville and the problems with the far right we've seen since especially during this 2020 election season. In her new book, Culture Warlords, journalist Talia Lavin goes undercover to expose the underworld of online fascists, Nazis, and Trump trolls alike. She's on cyber to tell us more. I'm Ben Maku, and enjoy the show. Well, Talia, thanks very much for coming on the show. Appreciate it, I, I, you're, I mean, this book is great. It's very timely.
1: Thank you. I um, I agree. One of the greatest works of Western literature, personally, in my unbiased opinion. No, I don't know.
0: <laughs>
1: it just came out today. Most people haven't read it, so I can say that.
0: And it's, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a crazier storm surrounding this type of book. I mean, between Trump shouting out Proud Boys to some of the Militia Activity that happened last week. This is like a very, this is this book is very of the moment.
1: Unfortunately, I mean, I really wish that it was as quaint as like if I had written a book about honeycombs or soup, but like, you know, I was sort of driven to it by, by what I felt was the urgency of the topic. And unfortunately, that's really been borne out by the news.
0: So explain to me, how did you come about writing culture warlords?
1: So it kind of actually started because I was routinely a target of far-right extremists and like the far-right media. Um, It was sort of like the abyss was already gazing into me. (laughs) So I thought I would gaze back and um, double down and sort of make that gaze as penetrating as I could. Um, You know, I'd already been featured on the Daily Stormer, the Nazi site, a couple of times as, you know, the K-word of the hour and um, regularly got anti-Semitic death, rape threats. So I thought, you know, okay, you have come to me and I and I will examine you.
0: Well, that's the thing is that you're you are a Jewish journalist who is going into these, you know, very crazy Nazi white supremacist all right doldrums and you're. (laughs) you, you, you know, you, you, you sock puppets to, to penetrate these groups. And what was that like? Like, I mean, how did you start, how did you, I mean, how did you get in? And then also how were you able to sort of convince them that you were one of them?
1: Well, I do want to start by saying the intention wasn't necessarily to write a gonzo book from the beginning. I did um, try to go through the front door and, and talk to some, Folks who represented these organizations. Unfortunately, my reputation as sort of a Jewish anti fascist loudmouth sort of preceded me. And um, I was specifically barred from a number of groups. Um, and so I had to kind of go in the back way. And as to where I found the spaces I entered, I mean, I had worked for Media Matters as an extremism researcher as my prior job. And so Um, based on what I did for that job, which was basically surveil the far right landscape every day and produce an internal newsletter, kind of being like, here's what the far right's talking about today. I had a pretty good idea of the landscape. In 2019, when I was doing the bulk of the reporting, um, a lot of Nazis, like there had been some sort of pro forma bannings of large Nazi accounts from Twitter and Facebook, So they were starting to try to figure out where to migrate to. And I noticed that on 8chan, um, uh, there were people starting to link to this encrypted app, Telegram, and listing channels where they were gathering with lovely names like Holocaust 2 and Generation Zyklon and, you know, all sorts of variations of the n-word. And so um, I started joining those chats under a false name. And um, then they linked to each other's content. There were separate channels um, that listed far right channels to join. And so I wound up joining around 90 chats and surveilling them on a daily basis, um, as well as kind of looking at the broader landscape online um, and on YouTube and and everywhere <laughs> that I could find. But, but the bulk, a lot of my research took place on Telegram, which really became a locus of far-right organizing in 2019.
0: And so, you know, for the average listener to, to, that doesn't know a lot about the far-right, I mean, I'm a far-right reporter, I do a lot on this, in this space, but I think you really broke down the, just the, how pervasive the online world is and, and, how, and how, how much of a culture it is of itself. What, what did you find in this, this, this gonzo journey?
1: Nothing particularly good, Ben. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I think the goal of the book is really to break it down for the layman reader, like who hasn't, like us, spent, you know, a significant portion of our adult lives like marinating in poison. (laughs) Um, What I found, yeah, I mean, it is a really, it is interesting to the degree to which it is a self-contained culture with these reference points, these slogans, these sort of code words. that are sort of shorthand for broader concerns like you know this idea of white genocide that like through demographic change and immigration the white race is being turned into a persecuted minority um you know one of the shorthands that sort of haunts me and was the like name of several chats was um make america 110 so Uh, There's this really specious statistic. I actually looked at a breakdown of it. It was just totally false, but it's this idea that Jews have been kicked out of 109 countries and uh, they want to make America the 110th and make it Judenrein. Um, So, you know, that was a really a concept that I encountered. You know, there's a lot of exchanging of texts, Um, you, you know, Mein Kampf and the Turner diary stuff you might expect, but also chronological texts from the 19th century. And, you know, um, Siege. Siege by James Mason, the uh, convicted pedophile slash spiritual godfather of the boffin division, stuff like that. Yeah. Read Siege. I mean, they really do encourage each other to read um, and use like the very, unfortunately, sturdy edifice of racist texts uh, and eugenic texts that have come out of the west in the last 200 years and use that as a scaffolding of proof you know from eugenics to phrenology all kinds of pseudoscience um as well as you know the sort of myth of the white western man um under attack that's you know propped up in various ways from religion to um these sweeping narratives that they create and trade among themselves i mean it's a world of sort of self-reinforcing propaganda and stochastic terror that just iterates and iterates and iterates in these spaces of radicalization
0: and i think it's really interesting and it's an important thing to know because i think a lot of people when i'm reporting on this type of thing and they it's tough for people to realize that this these these types of worlds it's like qAnon for example You know, they have literature to support the culture. And this becomes a culture and it's a worldview. And they take these these people really do take on these very illogical worldviews. And you can kind of see it in the way that they, like you said, they they have book clubs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they make audiobooks for one another. I mean, it is it is like QAnon, maybe. I mean, the the people I studied were like more like a little bit contemptuous of QAnon just because it's so boomery. They <laughs> mm-hmm. tended to be a bit younger and and sort of QAnon is all about this sort of wide-eyed belief. Um, you know, like very like these elastic minds willing to um, accommodate every conspiracy theory that sounds shiny within the within the broader sort of frame of Trump is going to save us from the Satanist pedophiles. But like the people that I studied tended to be younger and more cynical. And while they were very emphatically dedicated to the preservation of the white race, there's a lot of nihilistic cynicism there too. Um, Mm. So yeah, it is like QAnon and the sort of elaborateness of the worldview and the, the carapace that gets built to sort of accommodate it um, and also insulate it against, you know, people who would dare to assert such things as Nazism is bad. Um, But it, it is a little bit, it does differ from QAnon a bit, like the specific sort of online white power movement that I was looking at.
0: Did you ever find that, because obviously the moment that we're in right now, at least in the last, I'd say probably since the founding of Iron March in 2015, which is, you know, in shorthand, it's, it's a sort of Nazi Facebook, Twitter slash encrypted messaging group that, that spawned a lot of these, these whole ideologies and, and groups. Did you ever find that there was a there was a something about right now and this moment that is producing this type of thinking?
1: Well, I think Trump is a big part of it. I mean you kind of he's the elephant in the room in a sense um I think his sort of open white nationalism in the twenty fifteen twenty sixteen campaign season and then subsequent victory against all odds or whatever was um really a huge shot in the arm to this this uh, movement that really can't be overstated. I mean, there were all these triumphant headlines, there was widespread rejoicing in these sort of swampy corners of the internet that were rife with racial slurs. Um, And then subsequently, you know, once these groups form, they harden around different ideology, you know, they harden around different aspects of the ideology. Um, I think right now is an interesting and precarious moment, because you know, you have people who are part of the MAGA movement. Chris Mathias, who's a reporter at the Huffington Post, that is great. Or Huff Post, that is great. Um, sort of laid out his thesis that you know the the violence he's seen comes from sort of mainstream MAGA folks. Um, you know that a lot of the violence planned, for example, the Whitmer kidnapping plot, um, that was so horrifying. Like these were sort of Trump supporters, mainline Trump supporters. Um, the people that I surveilled, like certainly hideous violence has come out of that community, including the Christchurch mosque shooting, including the, um, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, um, the El Paso Walmart massacre. I mean, they are capable of violence and we're at this particular moment where they're sort of disillusioned with Trump. Um, they put a lot of hope in him and then found that despite his grotesque racism, there were elements of his governance that um, were simply too establishmentary and conservative for them, um, and that he was too cozy with Jews, like you know he had Jews in his administration, he has a Jewish son-in-law, he had allowed his white daughter to be corrupted by by the Jews um, and so there's a move away from electoralism you know, and attempting to infiltrate the GOP as like straightforward white nationalists without covering or apologizing for it or even being covert. There's a move away from that and towards accelerationism, which is the sort of thesis that um, in this case that civilizational collapse and the collapse of the US government um, will facilitate the creation of a white utopia and will allow them to engage in the sort of ethnic cleansing that is the linchpin of their fantasies. You know, that they'll be able to be the Einsatzgruppen they've always wanted to be. And,
0: and so, sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh no. So that's a very dangerous philosophy to have coursing through the minds of a lot of, you know, young men who are also obsessed with weapons.
0: <laughs> you know. Uh, in- incredibly dangerous. Mm. And I mean, I think the I think right now, one thing you are seeing is that. The FBI, for example, is very weary of this. And I think to some degree, you're seeing them see this as a threat in a way that they almost never really have.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, as as others have pointed out in this space, you know, when it comes to white supremacists engaging in terror against, you know, say, protesters, um, when you've seen the, like, phenomenally, like, enormous amount, you know of of attacks against protesters you know who've been part of the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement over the past 3 months there's been almost no federal intervention whatsoever um and just straightforward sympathy from local law enforcement mm-hmm. um you know the FBI gets involved when they feel there might be a threat to the state um but you know it's not that it's not as if this is necessarily about justice it's about order. <laughs> um, you know, so you, we've seen, you know, uh, I think there have been 22 incidents of gun violence and shootings at protests, almost 500 incidents of car attacks on, on protesters. I mean, really extraordinary numbers, far right violence in ways that are sort of unanticipated, incredibly widespread cross country, and yet sort of slipped under the radar and certainly haven't Um, culminated in the kind of showy law enforcement um, stuff that we saw in Michigan. So, you know, I do question the premise that this is about protecting people. I think it is about protecting the structures of power.
0: So to that point, at what point do you think that, or to what degree do you think tech companies and some of the platforms that these groups have traditionally used are responsible for the growth of some of these, these movements?
1: I think they are collaborators. I mean, I think they're just responsible on every level. I really cannot uh, underscore my contempt for for the way um, tech companies have dealt with this issue from the start. And there are certainly, um, you know, Black women were some of the first people sounding the alarms, like women like Sadette Harry and Lanasa Crockett, um, who you know, we're sort of saying from the first from 2011, 13, 12, 13, you know, saying like, hey, there are people from 4chan and 8chan who are masquerading as black men and women to sow dissension. So all this stuff, you know, that got chalked up to Russian interference later, or like became more mainstream as an issue. When, um, you know, white reporters like us started looking into it, like there were people who were sounding the alarm much earlier. So I just want to get that out. But As to the responsibility of tech companies in the first place, I mean, one of the points I make in the book, and and this is more amply documented by the wonderful Kathleen Ballou in her book, Bring the War Home, is that um, the Klan were among the earliest adopters of the internet. I mean, Mm -hmm. back in the DARPA days, back in the early 80s, Mm -hmm. um, they had created websites for recruitment that they could use for anonymity and planning, Um, you know, they were in early and enthusiastic adopters of the internet so it's not as if people creating social media sites could not have with the most cursory examination of history anticipated this problem but instead they neglected to do so with this move fast and break, break things ethos and unfortunately a lot of the what's been broken along the way is people's lives people's sense of safety you know there are, there's the superficial stupid conversation about cancel culture but i can tell you that i I've censored myself and so many other people have been, have, you know, been censored and driven offline by (laughs) racial slurs, by the most crude misogynistic harassment, and it happens every day. Um, And that, you know, never gets brought up as an issue. So so I think, you know, if tech companies invested a fraction of what should be invested in content moderation, as they do in UI or other aspects of, you know, um, their empires, then we might be living in a completely different landscape and one in which white supremacy was not flourishing so violently online. I mean, I think tech companies operate in this way in which they've outsourced the responsibility of checking violent organizing to a diminishing and depleted press corps. They only act reactively and in a way that sort of minimally covers their asses. And we live in a moment of crisis. Of course, I'm not expecting techno plutocrats to save us, but neither will I absolve them of their role.
0: Well, I think it's just, you look at the the, the influence of something like Facebook to the boogaloo movement, You can see, and, and you can see also Facebook's hesitance to crack down on it properly. It took, you know, it took basically the summer for them to really start to make moves on it. And then you know, meanwhile, you have all this online organizing happening on these platforms, and it's you know I I think it's when you look at something like like Telegram, you know they're not going to do anything, but then you have these larger American companies that clearly can be can be subject to shareholders, et cetera, and they're not doing much.
1: No, they're doing less than nothing. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a project on militias right now. And I can tell you, militia organizing is alive and thriving on Facebook, regardless of what their press shop would like you to believe. Um, you know, Boogaloo organizing still exists on Facebook; like it is all still happening there. Um, you know, these groups haven't even been driven underground. <laughs> they, like Facebook just like suspends a couple hundred pages, sends out a press release, and you know, a lot of credulous journalists in the tech space will, you know, duly repeat that, you know, press release and call it a day. And then, you know, Facebook can pat itself on the back. And meanwhile, people are going to die. I mean, you saw it in Kenosha where you had this event that directly led to the deaths of two protesters um, that had been reported and nothing happened. You know, I have tried to report death threats, rape threats against me, nothing happened. You know, content moderation should be at a premium. And we've seen over and over and over again, that it's outsourced, there's no mental health support for the people who do this kind of thing, you know, it's for pennies on the dollar, it's really not a priority, and, and that's insane to me. I mean, it just speaks to such a contempt for their users. You know, we know already that we're cattle being sold for data, but, you know, it would be nice at least to be fed some good grain and have the poison taken out of it.
0: And not to mention, I mean, it, it's pretty rich when, you know, people like yourself and journalists and people of color and trans people have received endless death threats on, on platforms like Twitter. And yet, yet when you when when people make jokes about President Trump dying of COVID-19, it's it's become an issue. And then the, the company takes action.
1: Yeah, well, it's like, you know, who is being protected and it's always the people in power. It's like always about preserving power and wealth and like these are the motivations here that's not a question to me i mean the path towards making these places online better juster healthier and less beset by extraordinary white nationalism uh and the recruitment of people towards white supremacist terror is open it's laid out like there are so many experts who have so clearly been ringing this warning bell and offering solutions and yet you know the tech companies are interested in profit they're interested in selling our data to the cops and you know they could not telegraph the fullness of their contempt more richly and 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 fully and so you know i really think if you're looking for someone to offer absolution to the tech companies i am not that person <laughs>
0: Well, thanks a lot, Tally, for being on the show. I appreciate it. And everyone should go out and read Culture Warlords.
1: Yeah, you know, greatest work in Western literature Move Over Herman Melville, found <laughs> quaking in his grave. Um, no, but it's, um, I worked really hard on it. I, I uh, exposed myself to some truly horrendous stuff so that you wouldn't have to. And um, it's available on Audiobook and Kindle and Amazon and your local bookstore. So please do go give it a read if you can. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks so much. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
2: Hello, hello, Ben. How are you?
0: Lorenzo, Lorenzo. Okay. Let's get right into this, this cypher. So cypher John time. McAfee, John McAfee, one of the weirdest, like, villainous, most villainous characters in, in big tech ever, possibly. I mean, the guy, like, probably killed some people or someone, allegedly, in Belize.
2: Yeah, most likely. Let's put it that way.
0: yeah he also was kind of a pioneer in creating one of the first social
2: networks yeah this is like when i saw this i was like holy shit uh that's crazy but also kind of makes sense because you know as you said john mcafee is truly bad and evil uh, and we know we are not celebrating him at all here it's just like a this is just a great example that like you know bad people in tech were doing interesting things for a long time and this is this is a great example of that you know this is the early early 90s i think uh, so you know early days of the web and he had the great idea of creating some sort of a chat social media you know a hybrid of a chat app and social media when when this wasn't really not um, something that people were doing um and you know as much as john McAfee, as we said is a really bad person he was definitely a person that especially back then had a good eye for business. Um, you know, the he McAfee, did. yeah, the McAfee antiv- ant- ant- antivirus is called, is still called McAfee because he had the eye of, um, you know, starting an, ant- an antivirus business when, um, when it wasn't really that uh, popular of an idea. Um, so yeah, this is a great story. I think, uh, It's a classic Ernie Smith story. You know, he's he's great at going back into the archives and pulling out amazing, forgotten or overlooked stories. Definitely worth a read.
0: Definitely, and I should add, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I spent, I think, seven hours with John McAfee in 2013.
2: Yeah, I I kind of don't want to ask you what you guys did. It's almost like it's better. No, 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 it was it was I was
0: it was when I was working for a wire uh in canada oh, wow. it was like a totally journalistic thing <laughs> just to be clear <laughs> and it was very weird i gotta tell you
2: nobody got was killed peak. in those seven hours that's uh,
0: not that i know of but it was in montreal and he was just an erratic character let me let's just put it that yeah, way. yeah
2: and, and just to close the circle on him jokes apart like you know the what happened in belize is still very much uh unclear but there's a great Netflix documentary about it. And you know, it doesn't leave a lot of doubts. Um, that no, at least, yeah, yeah. at least that he's a sexist and, uh, and probably a murderer. And, uh, and right now, anyway, he's, let's he's go on, let's go on so, before
0: this goes to, into libelous territory. Yeah, anyway, so leave. Lorenzo, geez, give him this guy. We're anyway, give
2: the lawyers something to do too, you know, they're bored.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I don't think they're bored at all. Um, Shout outs to Yoni. Uh, the goal of Iran's fake, prob- this is one of yours, uh, emails, was chaos. I just want to be clear. I did call this, didn't I?
2: You did call it. Th- did you say it was Iran? I, I think you said yes, I said actually. Russia or you Iran. I said runner at Russia or Iran, yeah. Yes, yes, you did call it. And in fact, you, you, not only you called it uh, in that sense, you also had the, uh, the foresight to say that this reminded you of the... Um, The cyber caliphate, which was one of the most famous uh, false flags uh, that we've seen and proven, and people have proven in the last few years. Uh, So, yeah, just to set up the stage, um, as you know, probably everyone knows, last week, um, thousands of voters across the US started to receive uh, threatening emails saying, Vote for Trump or else. and yeah, it turns, and, and the emails were pretending to be from the Proud Boys, uh, you know, this uh, neo-Nazi group that uh, you and others advice have covered really well in the last few months. Um, but yeah, fast forward to only three days later and uh, the US government was like, well, actually, no, it wasn't the Proud Boys, uh, it was Iran, which was a great uh, example that uh, when governments want, they can do attribution very quickly and... You know, we have no evidence yet uh, behind this claim. Um, Reuters reported that the mistake that the Iranian hackers did was include an IP address in the video that we of course, uh, wrote about. Of course. And, and, you of course. Know, that, they did. For, <clears throat> and, you know, first of all, that, those kind of mistakes happen even to the best of us, even to the best Russian hackers, even to the best uh, Chinese hackers. It can happen. And so yeah, it's pretty sloppy. It's let's pretty sloppy. Honest. Yeah, let's let let's you know the NSA does not do that. Let's. Put I was it gonna that say the
0: NSA doesn't get caught doing this. Yeah, just, the just, NSA to, just to just to tie this
2: one off though, the
0: the one thing I did find funny, about and the, the reason I spotted it, and I I remember I I slacked you on this, I was like this is like totally mm-hmm. some bullshit from yeah that was awesome. Russia. Like
2: you really totally called it. <laughs> and
0: to, to be honest with you, the reason it was it, I thought of it that way because it reminded me of how shitty that one that first one was. Mm-hmm it's just such a shit. Yeah. It shows that these people have, whoever did this has almost zero understanding of, of American culture. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like it's got, it's got like a parodied version of what they think American culture, like, like this wouldn't get found, you know, found out. And, and that's like, like, like the proud boys are going to come to your house and fuck you up. Like, listen, I'm not going to defend the proud boys. And that's such a terrible place to be, but like, they're not going to do that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. I, I think so, it was anyway. a, it was pretty sloppy overall, but like it got it got some impact, and maybe that's all they wanted. You know, I think the the person probably that came up with this that who had this idea is gonna get a raise because this had. Do you, they, I don't
0: know because it's also like it raises the specter against Iran and at a time when like you know Biden wins, they're gonna come back and be like, "What the fuck, man?" And well, Iran's like yeah. under crushing sanctions; they really can't afford to have any more.
2: Yeah, maybe. So I I don't maybe. know.
0: I'm not I'm not convinced this is a smart move. Period. I think it's it, yeah. It would be smart if it actually worked in someone like, I don't know, like from the perspective of an aggressor state to the United States, like someone burns down a uh pole or something like that. This is time will Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So this next one, it's this is a viral hit from Matthew Galt, friend of the show.
2: Matthew Galt. Great job. He's he's been doing a great job.
0: He has. He's been killing it. Uh, he had this amazing story about, and it's such a honestly, this is a question that I've been fielding from people constantly keep asking me like what do you think's going on mm-hmm. with america right now Is is a civil war coming and this one is is the u.s already in a civil war now i love the reporting on this it's sort of a look at like experts who've weighed through data points other civil wars in the past few years mm-hmm. and how they kind of you know they kind of they they calibrate to things like syria and some of the the unrest that happened before the uh, war actually war actually happened and and actually, looking at sort of comparing that to some of the unrest that's been happening in the United States, and I think it is very similar. I'm going to be honest with you. Like from my perspective, it's not. This is why the the recent you know last the last summer and the unrest that's come from especially the far right and, and you know mm-hmm. the protests. It is like it's unprecedented, at least in in the unprecedented in the last thirty years. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think this story is a sobering reminder that history does not happen exactly in the way we study in the books, you know? And this is not to say that the history books are not accurate. What I'm saying is that it's very hard to know. It's very hard to like study, you know, the American Civil War or World War II, the lead up to it and sort of, and not really understand how that looks like Mm -hmm. on the ground day to day.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So, so yeah, the the, the central argument of the story is that it may be already happening and we just don't know because, as uh, as Galt wrote, collapse is not evenly distributed. And maybe what we're seeing are symptoms of a collapse that's already uh, ongoing and a civil war that's brimming in the background.
0: Exactly. So I think, you know, to, to finalize this episode on a fantastic note, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of, you know... Two things, because I'm reporting on the far right constantly and on these like paramilitary neo-Nazi groups, two things, you know, the stuff that happened in Portland with the Mm -hmm. Michael Reinald killing and the tit it really was a tit for tat killing. And that's what Mm -hmm. I thought. I thought to myself, we're in the, we're at the point in American history, we got tit for tat political politicized Mm -hmm. killings between rival, like rival death squads almost. And I laugh only because I'm just like so uncomfortable with this notion and i remember that made me very uncomfortable but it also reminded me of something else cuz i've reported really extensively on the war in ukraine and one of the most interesting things about the war in ukraine if you're american or canadian and you're there is the landscape itself while it's you know in the former soviet union and it's in ukraine and it's not it's not canada mm. it's not the united states of america it looks pretty similar hmm. and when you look at it it's destroyed and it's it's like it's you know it's 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 what the the post civil war state would look like in huh, the US or Canada. I remember always thinking that way. And the one thing I always remember hearing from people there was nobody thought hmm. that it was going to happen there. Yeah. I remember I was I was hiding out in a in a bombed out uh house and there was no joke the dry cleaning of I guess dad's dry cleaning literally on the bed that mm. was rushed out of. And this is two years later. And I remember thinking the guy was, was, was so, so didn't think that his, mm. his area uh. of the world was going to go to war that he did his dry cleaning. Yeah. So it just goes to show you a lot. Uh, who knows? You, you We got to, I mean, I don't think there's a imminent Military conflict, but what I am saying is, I think we need to have respect for that these sorts of bad things can happen, and we need yeah. to do everything we can to, yeah, and we have to, to pay attention to
2: and, and be careful, and uh, exactly you know, go to vote, be active in politics because this this may very well be the most important time in American modern history.
0: This might be the only time I've ever actually believed I've actually agreed that this is the most important election. Mm. Yeah. In the past I'm like come on.
2: That's yeah, that's I'm a cliche on. but this year Yeah, this one I'm like true. I
0: don't know, it feels much different. But anyway. Yeah. Lorenzo, I'll talk to you later. Uh go Thanks, man. Forza Forza Juve bye.